Hello and welcome to the Finogo FinTalks podcast, where we connect you to the latest in regtech, compliance, anti-money laundering activity. My name is Dan Nasigdu. I'm your host here at Finogo. And today we're talking about security threats faced by financial institutions, what criminals can do once they're inside your system, and understanding the criminal mindset. And to that end, I'm joined by Glenn Wilkinson, founder of Capenta, security analyst and former Rhodes Scholar who happens to be an expert on all three subjects. Hey, Glenn, can you tell us a bit more about yourself and your history working in security and how you ended up working with so many financial institutions over the years? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. So yeah, my, my background is it's uh, information security in the shortest possible way hacker for hire is uh, is my game um so i spent many years in the consultancy kind of business do, doing lots of uh, research traveling um all sorts but mostly hacker for hire type stuff which essentially means customers pay me to break into the infrastructure to point out the weaknesses and then they can fix it it's kind of like hiring a burglar to check your home security i'll come and jiggle the doors and check the windows and whatnot and find the things you may have overlooked that criminals could find and take advantage of so I help you find them before they do. And the the financial space, yeah, it's it's fairly fairly high demand for those types of skills. When I got into the uh, this kind of trade, you know, if you go back kind of 20 years, it was quite a hard sale back then. You're going to a bank or a fintech or something and saying, hey, can you pay me to break into your organization and steal your money? And it's like, mm, that sounds a bit weird. But these days it's it's uh, accepted you know, part of business that you need to do these, what we call penetration tests or security audits. And yeah, I've done a lot of work for... Um, for all, all kinds of businesses, but yeah, fintechs, anything financial, there's always a lot of demand uh, in that space. Fair enough. And this is quite a facetious question, but have you ever thought of playing both sides or, or getting involved with the other side of things? Because I feel like that must be a quite an exciting world, generally. Yeah, it's interesting. You assume that I'm not. <laughs> no, no, it's it's yeah, it's, it's something you might think about. It depends what what you want from life. If you're driven by money and financial gain, I suspect that's an avenue that that you might take. If you're driven by curiosity, which you know, myself and most of my hacker friends, it's, it's, it's that's what drives us. How does this thing work? How can we take it apart? And just that kind of just morphed into a career, like a you know curious teenager taking things apart, and then decades later, oh, that that's a job. You can take things apart and get and get paid to do it. And to be honest, I think the the risk, at least from my point of view, outweighs the reward. Like uh, maybe it depends on the on your, on your personality type, but I definitely wouldn't sleep knowing that at any moment uh, the the door could get kicked in. And also, like it's it's the, these criminal gangs, they they hurt people if it's financially or, or or whatnot, and that doesn't that doesn't seem like a nice thing to do. Yeah, I guess uh, I I think one of the things that is really difficult to to reconcile in that world is ordinary people are the ones who get hurt, right? It's not sure like the big bank, the big institution will lose money or whatever it is, but it's a real person's money, it's a real person's account that is being targeted at the end of the day, and that's not exactly great. It, I mean, you use the term hacker a lot. There is. Is that your preferred term? All I know really about that world is from Mr. Robot. So, Mr. Robot is surprisingly accurate. There's, there's a lot of really cheesy shows, but Mr. Robot, they, they they did it right, and they they consulted a bunch of us in the industry to make sure that you know it's it's accurate. The tools they use are accurate. So that's that's a good um, that's yeah good a good metric. And yeah, the term it depends how far you you go back with the definition. Like the term hacker goes all the way back to the 1960s and the U.S. universities, where, where hackers were people who squeezed out a little bit more processing time from mainframes to you know get get more stuff done. It kind of changed over the years to to criminals, maybe to today, where it's, it's almost a title like you get certification, certified ethical hacker, and things like that. Um, 
I, I like the term, but more the playful original term, like a hacker is someone who's curious and tinkers and, and takes things apart. But yeah, there is the, the criminal component to you. Fair enough. So, so when you're uh, being curious and tinkering and taking banking security systems apart, what exactly is it that they're getting out of that? What is it exactly that you're doing for those financial institutions? Because you said penetration testing. I think I have a, I think everyone has like a vague idea of what that means, but what does it actually really result in on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. So essentially what you want to do is help an organization become more secure. And there's different ways to approach that. So the the one approach is yeah the, the, the penetration test. That's almost the, the applied approach. So it's going and, and trying to actually get access to systems you should not have access to. The other option I'll talk about in a second is more threat modeling, and that's more hypothetical. Um, it's, you know, let's, let's draw out some diagrams and spec things out and think about what we have and think about what could go wrong and address those problems before we actually do anything applied or before the bad guys do. But a penetration test can have many forms. Um, essentially, you, you look at an organization um, at the what you call the attack surface. The attack surface is... Um, what is exposed that I can um, kind of poke at to try to get in? So, for example, it might be the website, it might be the mail server. Um, it'll depend on your vantage point. So, if you're looking from the internet, you'd probably you know figure out the domain of of you know whatever it is, acmefintech.com or something. From that domain, try and find other subdomains, find IP addresses, all these things that are um, how it plugs into the internet and how it connects to the internet. And you would essentially do a, a massive piece of reconnaissance, which is where you figure out everything that this organization has that is connected to the internet. And then you would, uh, I say poke around, it, it, is, it is almost poking around. You would manually connect to systems. Oh, look, here's some some web page that hasn't been updated for a long time. There's kind of login portals. Can I, you know, if I put junk in the login box, is, is there an error? Does stuff crash? Are they running out of date software? Is stuff been, has stuff been patched? Um, you know, some some developer who did some work back, you know, ten years ago, forgot to update this edge box right on the, you know, the, the periphery of the network. Has that been fixed? Generally, the way it goes down is you spend a bunch of time doing your reconnaissance, figuring out what's there, a good chunk of time finding that one spot that's weak and breaking in there, and then very, very rapidly, once you breach the perimeter, you kind of burst into the internal network. And at that point, you know, generally that stuff happens very quickly. You, you kind of pilfer all the data. You, you know, we call lateral movement. You move from system to system. And if it's a financial institution, you're probably looking for, depending on the context, but often we call it what, like, as an organization, what are your crown jewels? So for a, like a financial institution, it might be customer records, it might be credit card numbers, it might be um, IP, depending on the space. And hackers are kind of generally after that type of information, and then you pilfer it out and off and off you go. You make it sound incredibly easy. Um, it sounds like really once you penetrate that first level of security, you have the keys to the kingdom. Everything is open and accessible to you. Are there not, I, like, as, as a layman, I would have thought there would be multiple layers of, of security that you yeah. broken through. Yeah, so there, there definitely are multiple layers. It depends on the maturity of the organization. It varies a lot across the board. It's definitely come a long way. And as a defender, you, you want to think about things like, like exactly like you say, like network segmentation, be it logical or physical, just yeah, keep things keep things separate, keep user accounts separate. Don't let admins have you know unfettered access across the network and things like that. To be honest, I haven't been on many engagements where that initial point of compromise hasn't enabled me to um, to call pivot to pivot deeper into the organization. Like the most the most common attack we see, um, be it you know, in the financial space or otherwise, political, private sector, is uh, spear phishing to a fairly low level employee. 
you may be firing you know, Bob from accounting who handles processing or something, payment processing. You send him an email with uh, maybe an Excel document attached, invoice for blah, blah. You make it look like it's from a customer that he's expecting an email from. You pack some macro code inside that Excel document such that when he opens it, it downloads and runs some little Trojan and it gives you access to Bob's computer and from there use that as a stepping stone to, de- to dig deep into the network. And that, to be honest, is how most hacks go down these days. Hackers are lazy. That's the path of least resistance. And that's what we call social engineering, convincing someone to do something. Hand over credentials, open a file, click a link. And um, that's the most common threat that I would see today, I'd say. Okay, that, that's interesting because, like you said, hackers are lazy. But then on the, on the other hand, the reconnaissance side of things sounds like a lot of work to find to find yeah. those those small edge cases where someone has left something unupdated for years at a time. So, so it's interesting that hackers have, have pivoted, I guess, from that sort of deep work to, to just targeting humans yeah. and getting access that way. So it's, it's always, yeah, if you, if you go back over the years, you can you kind of see this, this progression. And lazy, yeah, lazy is one word. Another way to describe it is the path of least resistance. So it's the least amount of work I can do. Even if it's a lot of work, it's the least amount of work and for the reward involved. So depending where you are in the world, sometimes it's not so financially viable to get a job as a programmer or a security expert. It's more financially viable to write ransomware or to hack into organizations and steal information and that kind of thing. Um, so it's definitely part of least resistance. And um, yeah, it's, it's not it's not easy. It's definitely difficult. It'll vary a lot across the board depending on the organization, the maturity and whatnot. Um, but yeah, definitely it's it's a lot of work, but it's not it's not super, super difficult. It's somewhat difficult, I would say. Okay. Just to get into the hacker mindset for a second then. I'm a hacker. I've I've done my spearfish or my my recon, and I've I've penetrated that network, and I'm I'm in the system. What can I do then? Like I, I have I have access to the to mm-hmm. accounts or whatever it may be, but moving that money out is going to be very difficult. How much like moving into other accounts? I assume is also going to be quite difficult. So what can I? Yeah. Do with that? So it depends. So yeah, there's a lot of options, and and, and oftentimes it's, it's interesting if you go back. I don't know what to to the nineties, the the nineties with the wild west of hacking. Back then, you'd you'd hack in some organization and you just deface the website, like you know, it's like spraying graffiti on the front of the back. It's like ha ha, hacker group blah was here. Uh, my favorite group was called uh, Evil Angelica back in the nineties from uh, from Rugrats, but kind of defacing it. And then as you progress, as organizations moved more online, moved more business processes online, moved their customers online, that's where the criminality element started maturing and coming into its own because hackers kind of saw oh there's there's financial gain now as well very different group from the curious hackers who deface and the criminals who um, take advantage of that. But yeah, good good question. So you're a hacker, you've broken into some financial institution, what what can you do? So yeah, the one option is definitely yeah, financial, like transferring funds between bank accounts. Definitely, as you say, tricky. Like the, the easy part, to be honest, is, I mean, it's difficult, but comparatively easy part is to break in and transfer money from one account to another. That's just a database. Like find a database, do a transfer. Often it's not the the security guys or the you know the honeypots or whatnot that catch you. It's the auditors. So if you try as you transfer whatever ten thousand pounds to another account, that flags some system or financial you know some financial flag, or you try and draw the money out. That's where it gets flagged rather than the the actual transfers. Um, and I think as an attacker, there's basically two options you have. You you break into the the financial institution itself like directly, and you transfer funds around, or you steal information and sell it on the dark web or something. The other option is you target the consumers, the, the the people who have bank accounts. You target their home laptop or something or their phone, and you get access to their account, and you try and extract money from from their account. So it's kind of going after the whale versus going after the fish. 
and maybe go after a little little fish that's worth more than than the whale. But we would call that second option kind of um, account account takeover, where you're targeting the uh, the end users. Oh, so, well, that, that kind of leads me to my next question, which is how do how do these criminals, how do these hackers choose the right person to to hack into and to and the right institution to to attack? Like how how are these banks signaling their weakness in a way to these hackers? Yeah, it's a good question, and and often it's it's often opportunistic. Like the the internet is a somewhat dirty place, and if you're a hacker group, sometimes it's just scouring the internet. And often, like people say to me, oh, I'm, I'm not going to get hacked because I have nothing interesting and no one's going to target me. It's like, yeah, fair enough. You probably won't get directly targeted, but it might be just opportunistic. You're at the wrong place at the wrong time, and you know the virtual mugger gets you. Um, so one that, that's one avenue. Like It might just be purely opportunistic. Hackers scanning the internet or browsing Instagram or something, and they, they see you holding your bank card or something, like some silly... Opsec fail like that, so that that's that's definitely one option, opportunistic. But also, they will target um, companies or institutions that they see as having uh, a lot of worth, and maybe the security isn't that great. Like there's there's, there's kind of a dial there: like how secure are you versus how much worth do you have? So they probably wouldn't necessarily target a charity, even if they're massive, because they might not have that many funds. But a small startup that's got a hundred million in seed funding, yeah, that's maybe a bit more attractive because. You know, it's a young, immature company, and there's there's a possibly a lot of a lot of money there. Um, but I'd say it's mostly opportunistic. The other really interesting point, I think, is, um, and we'll probably touch on it a bit, a bit later, I think. But um, there are different categories of criminals or hackers here. So some hackers will just kind of scour the internet, look for look for institutions, maybe break in and get an initial uh, point of compromise. But they won't do anything. They'll just gather all that information and then they'll go and sell it to other groups who will say, hey, I'm looking for a financial institution in London that has X revenue and X many users. Do you have anything on you know, on your shelf? And then the, that, that group will go, yep, we've got a yeah, shelf up here. We've got this this bank or something. I'll sell that to you for X million in Bitcoin. And the second group will go and try and recoup that investment by compromising it and doing something to get the money out. Okay. So you said something interesting there. Well, you said lots of interesting things there. But there was one thing in particular that stood out to me, which was you saying that people having their credit cards on Instagram or whatever. And I've seen posts like that where people have put their entire card up on Instagram or Twitter and then been like, oh, where's all my money gone? Because, you know, no one ever taught them how to how to keep their stuff safe. Yeah. What, what can be done from a consumer protection point by banks and other financial institutions to protect customers who are, you know who are going to do that sort of thing. There's always going to be people who, who yeah. don't know what they should and shouldn't be doing. So what can they do on the on the uh, the banking side, on the financial mm-hmm. institution side, to so, so that when someone just has those card details, they can't just be mm-hmm. broken into and, and have a criminal pose as that yeah. Uh, customer? Yeah, that's no, a, it's a good question. It's, it's I guess from, from our point of view, it looks bizarre, but if, if you're a bit naive and you're really excited, you've got your new bank card and it's got you know, a nice picture on it or something, and it's you know, nice to take a photo and, uh, and, and show the world and show your friends. If, if you jump on Instagram or, or um, I don't know how to use Snapchat or TikTok, but I assume it's got a search function, um, and you search for phrases like new card or phrases like that, it's surprising how many, how many hits that you get. I think in terms of preventing that, um, the I think the, the the possibly best, quickest, easiest method, uh, Monzo do this. When you get your card in the mail, um, you kind of open the envelope, you know, it's beautifully presented, and there's kind of a warning there. Hey, hope you like your new card. 
remember, don't take a photo of it because you know people. You know, it's some some cute, clever message that kind of lets you know reminds you, hey, people are people are watching. Um, so it's definitely that that angle, kind of user user awareness angle. I think is probably probably the best option. Um, and it's not so. It's it's what we call uh, in, the, in the industry opsec operational security. That yes, term borrowed from the military just means not putting yourself out there or knowing what you put out there. So the one thing is your photos of your card. Other things to keep in mind are your your online presence, your your Facebook, your LinkedIn, your your Twitters, all your social media. Because what often happens is a, a hacker will get some initial starting point. Maybe they they see you post a photo of a card. They can't see the number, but they see the bank the bank name on there. Then they you know find your Facebook account and they see where you live, where you went to school. Um, enough information that they can possibly call the bank and impersonate you. Hey, this is Glenn. I forgot my uh, I've I've lost my card. I've changed my address. Can you send it here? So I think there's there's two points there. One is the user awareness around those types of impersonation style OPSEC fail type attacks. And I think the other side of the coin is as the banking institutions, the financial institutions, understanding that's that's how hackers think. It's not just, hey, break into your machine and steal your stuff. There's a lot of social engineering and manipulation that users may fall victim to. And I've had friends, yeah, that's happened a few times to friends of mine, you know, they, they get some an, an SMS from their bank, looks like it's from their bank. You know, the SMS sender is the name of the bank because that's easy to forge. And hey, unusual transaction, pair of shoes bought, click here if it wasn't you. Oh, to verify it really is you, please enter these details. So I think there's, there's two things there. There's user awareness um, to make sure the, the, the users know about that. And then on the banking side, yeah, just, just making sure they're aware of those styles of attacks and, and trying to combat them. It's really interesting. I, I want to shift tracks just for a second because obviously ATO attacks, like account takeover attacks and bug finding and open source intelligence are not the only ways that uh, people can get involved in these criminal activities. Money muling is becoming a more frequent issue. Mm. And for anyone who doesn't know, money muling is when an ordinary person uh, makes their account available to a criminal element to funnel money through, usually illicit funds. Mm. And I've I've personally found it really interesting um, because not even that long ago, just a couple of months ago, I got an ad on Instagram saying hey uh if you have a wire card account still you know the, the company that famously uh went down very uh i think in 2022 2021 um because of massive fraud they said if you have a wire card account still uh and you don't want to use it mm. we'll pay you two grand to use it yeah and it was it was amazing a that they were so brazen about it and b that it was on it was on instagram you know there, there are millions and millions of people on that every day and uh, this it's also known as squaring, and I actually uh, had a really disappointing conversation with my one of my young cousins the other day, and I said to him, "Hey, if anyone ever talks to you about squaring, don't get involved." And he laughed at me and said, "Yeah, well, it's been called squaring for years. Like, what are you talking about?" And I was like, "Okay, cool. I'm very uncool <laughs> and very out of the loop." But yeah, so so my point is, is how what can what can be done really to to stop people from becoming exposed to money building, and and really, I guess once you have exposed your details to a mm. criminal element in that way like what are what are the knock-on effects of that like mm. those those are you know really intimate personal details that are then being compiled by a criminal element it's almost um naive to think that they wouldn't sell on those details or put them up for sale on the dark web yeah yeah absolutely I, i'm yeah i think equally fascinated by this whole this, this entire uh, you know, area, but specifically the the the, the muling aspect of it, um, and it's definitely come a long way. 
So I was, I was reading some some articles yesterday from the the, the NECC, so the National Economic Crime Centre. I think they estimated there were twenty six thousand cases of mules being used in the UK. Um, I think it was twenty twenty. The sad part is it was predominantly young people. Like it's fourteen year olds. I think the oldest kind of thirty, but predominantly in the, in the kind of teenage, um, the teenage range. Because as you say, you're on Instagram and um, you're, I don't know, you're a bit bored, want some money. If you jump on Instagram now, you search for quick cash you'll see exactly those types of ads that you're seeing. It's just pages and pages and accounts and accounts of um, yeah, these accounts that just, they post photographs of just these huge stacks of cash, like 15 grand in cash. And like, hey, you want to make quick cash? Message us. That's the one way. The the other way is legitimate adverts. Like you get adverts all the time. Hey, do you want to work from home? Make, you know, two grand a week. Click here. So a lot of time people don't even know they're being meals. Like, hey, okay, we, you know, um, it might be posed right with some, money transfer service you know it sounds very legitimate we just need to transfer money um, through your account and you keep a little bit um, and there's also coercion so it might be that uh, so many cases of you know, these kind of criminal gangs just you know going out to whatever kids in the street if you know, they're in a neighborhood or something and you know threatening them with violence or whatnot um, like you know give us as you say your square your your, your card details um, otherwise we're gonna you know, do do bad things I think the the most dangerous part and the kind of the implication so yeah one is definitely your details, once they're out there, they're out there, especially like your your card number can change, but your date of birth, your address, your um your all that kind of history, once that's out there, that's that's you know, you, you can't scrub that. I think the possibly sadder part is it's generally the mules who pay the price. So you're some teenage kid and you, you know, transfer some money for this for this gang and um bad the, I think the two worst things that can happen. So one is the bank freezes the funds before you can give them back to the gang. And then, um, then you you're in debt to some criminal organization for like ten thousand pounds or something. The money's been frozen, and then, then then what? Like then the you know the, those gangs will get that money back with interest, so essentially indebted to them for life. Um, also, once um, if you get caught, you're gonna have you'll be blacklisted for any kind of credit rating for life. Like you're 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 pretty much done. Um, and that's that's yeah, that's quite scary. And also, in terms of prison times, I think it's up to fourteen years in prison for for doing this type of muling. So it's definitely it looks looks like quick money, but it's definitely quite dangerous money. Um, and in terms of dark web, yeah. So your 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 question there, I think there's there's multiple aspects of the dark web. So one is these criminal gangs might garner all this all this type of information. Your your um, your post your, your PII, your post identifiable information. And in big enough quantities, yeah, generally you, you sell that kind of stuff in bulk. Like on the dark web, right, 1,000 units of UK home address, bank card, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's definitely one option. There's also the criminal element on the dark web of using things like um, like you know, ransomware and, and, and you know, cryptocurrency, get into a whole other, whole other ball, game, ball game there. There's entire online markets where you can buy that kind of, buy that kind of information. So it's definitely quite a... Um, interesting space to uh yeah to to learn about yeah i remember uh in our in our pre-talk we would, we spoke about how um there was one market that was taken down a few i think like a few weeks ago a few months mm. ago called uh genesis market that had yeah two million people's identity details on it and that's yeah. just one market on one website yeah yeah genesis was, was a really good takedown i'm not sure it was led by the nca but it was definitely a kind of um europol interpol type type affair Genesis was interesting because there's there's always well there's, for a long time there's been online marketplaces to buy to buy information. It's usually usually credit card style information, but generally your personal information. Um, it's usually in the past been typically you know, kind of usernames and passwords. Um, and what we saw is that criminals would buy usernames and passwords and they'll log into accounts, you know, account takeover and and you know 
either use those accounts for muling or extract the funds or whatever. And then you have this ecosystem, this back and forth defenders and attackers and def defenders realize, okay, let, let's up our security. If someone logs in, fine, username and password, but if it's from a new device, so it's not Bob's usual laptop, let's flag that. And the way that you would know if it's Bob's laptop or not will be one, the IP address you're connecting from, um, two, any kind of cookies, like some kind of session identifier, we would call it. It's like a little crumb that, that means it's your laptop. So the Genesis marketplace, what the hackers had done is they had compromised th thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of laptops like all over the world and they hadn't just stolen usernames and passwords. They'd, they'd made notes of the IP addresses they connect from and any any cookies or session identifiers. So as the hacker, when you, you buy that information, you can impersonate those users to a much greater degree and it was almost impossible to, uh, to catch. Um, to anyone who's listening, I recommend that you go to haveibeenpwned.com and you can enter your email address there and just see if you if your data was involved in you know, that that market or any other large scale data breaches. I mean, how are they really caught? Because it seems like it's a very easy thing to do without anyone detecting it, right? And I mean, if it was me, I'd probably be quite arrogant about it, uh, and yeah. and I'd probably get quite an ego. Um, so, but yeah, how how do these how do these hackers really tend to get get caught by this exodus? So it's it's a it's a lot of options. So one is law enforcement has really been making. A lot of progress in how they approach, understand, and um, deal with these groups. Was, you know, five, ten years ago, it was they were largely not as organized, especially kind of cross-border organization. Because you know, if, if you're a hacker, you can live anywhere in the world and you know, cause damage and suffering on the, on the other side of the world. So even if you get identified, well, what's what do you what do you do about it, Mister FBI? I live in um, some faraway country. Um, so there's two ways you get caught. One is um, really hard work from the police. So and, and, and the, the, the Genesis, Genesis example is one. The other one was, I think it was last year or so, um, EncroChat. It was a um, you know, WhatsApp type app that had end-to-end -end encryption, but it was, I'm not sure if it was directly marketed towards criminality. It was like 99% used by criminality because it was anonymous and encrypted. Um, it's pretty much used for you know, the, the entire supply chain of criminality. So it was or where you buy your drugs, your guns, where you hack accounts and sell information to even like gangs organizing hits on rival members and things like that. And there was this massive operation. Um, what was the name? Start with a V. Operation Veritas or something like that. Um, massive uh, Europol uh, investigation. Really hard work over a long period of time. They managed to crack the encryption, get into the systems, and just monitor these these criminals for a long time. So they monitor them very closely, figure out who they were in real life. And it was a huge, it was the biggest, I think, sting operation, I think, in at least recent history, if not ever. I think it was 700 arrests in the UK. Um, they confiscated uh, millions and millions of pounds and weapons and everything. So that was almost the, um, the, the good guys hacking, right? It was the law enforcement hacking the criminals to, um, yeah, to, to, to breach them and find out who they are. The other way as a hacker group that you might get, uh, get done is it's really hard to segment your criminal life from your personal life, right. um, that kind of you know going back to that opsec term, like you really have to live a double life. Like this laptop, this phone, this is only for my criminal stuff. This laptop, this phone, this is my personal life. And even location, like don't do your, you know, don't um, you know, don't do your criminal work where you know, at, <laughs> at home. Don't you know? Don't sure. met where you met. Um, and a good example maybe is the the Lulsec hacker group. This is quite a few years ago now, but really prolific hacker group, and they they just wanted to cause chaos. There's no financial gain. They were just doing it for the lulls, as, as you say. And the way they, they did huge amounts of damage, they, they hacked everyone, PBS and Sony and uh, um, really large-scale attacks. The way they got done is uh, Victor, one of the hackers, uh, Hector, sorry, Hector, 
one time over this however year-long hacking spree, he connected to a chat server and he forgot to enable his VPN before he did that. Just the one time, that one mistake, that one time, FBI was watching, they got his real IP address, kicked in his front door um, and turned him. It's like, right, you either get life in prison or whatever it was, or you get whatever it is, reduced sentence mm-hmm. and you turn in your mates. Um, so he he came back on the scene like a week later. So, oh, sorry, everyone, my grandma died. I had to you know go out of town, but I'm back. Let's do some more crime. Um, oh. By the way, guys, I'm curious where what's what's your name and where do you live? And everyone except one member got got caught through that because one member had good opsec. He's like, no, I'm not telling you anything, and this seems suspicious. That's that's largely I'll say the, the two ways that these groups get get brought down. Well, I mean, it, I mean that does sound like ego entirely. Then, um, yep, the fact that they got that that lax about it, that is really mind-blowing but like you said there there is that real international element to it yeah. and i think that's that's really that's a that's a really difficult thing to overcome and that kind of connects to one of the things i wanted to talk about which was ransomware mm. and obviously i mean there are, there are so many threats to, to financial institutions uh from so many different vectors mm. uh especially from a digital digital mindset but ransomware i think is one of the juiciest ones right it gets a lot of press coverage when when those things get announced like the WannaCry attack in the UK with the, on the NHS, for example. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that, even even though we know these things happen, one of the things that I I rarely see documented is, or clearly documented anyway, is the money flows from these ransomware attacks. Mm-hmm. So, and also so many of them aren't reported, right? If you're a yeah. big security company or if you're a big company that relies on security, like a bank, yeah. you're not going to tell people, hey, we got attacked and we and we bowed uh, to that attack. So how does that money move how is it tracked i think mm-hmm. for a long time bitcoin was the preferred way of payment for a lot of these ransomware attackers yeah um but how how do they result on payoffs and who is actually doing them you know because yeah. i think there there's a real mercenary element to a lot of these ransomware attacks yeah yeah absolutely it's it's, it's such an interesting field um and it kind of goes back to the idea of the we never anticipated that cryptocurrency would be used for for this kind of un- unintended side effect of a new technology in this ecosystem that criminals realized, oh, we can, because w- without the cryptocurrency element, you can't really do ransom attacks. It's like, right, I'm going to breach your system and you have to pay me a million pounds into my HSBC account. Here's the account number. Otherwise, you know, I'm going to burn your data. It's like, well, then you just go find that account owner. So cryptocurrency really in- in- enabled um, um, yeah, modern modern ransomware. And the way, yeah, so good, good question. So you're a, um, hacker group and through whatever we whatever ways and means you manage to um, deploy ransomware on some organization how that actually gets deployed is maybe a, a follow-up question but let's assume it's been deployed and all your machines have been locked it's a big message saying hey we've encrypted your data if you want it back give us bitcoins send you know send the money here as an organization yeah you've got your two options one you you pay the ransom um, it's definitely an option. It's not illegal. It's frowned upon. Um, there's talk about making it illegal in different countries, different jurisdictions, but it's really hard to enforce um, because, as you say, you, we we don't know the numbers because you know most people probably don't even disclose that they have been hacked or that they um, they paid the ransom. Um, I say the ransom's been paid, and it's usually it varies a lot. I think that different reports have different figures, but. The average ransomware amount is around two hundred fifty thousand, but you know, up to, I think the the record was forty odd million for some uh, financial institution in Chicago. But let's say you've paid the Bitcoin amount now. As the hacker group, what what do you do? And yes, yeah, genuinely, it is difficult to move that money around. Essentially, it's the, it's the ingress and the egress. So Bitcoin itself, yeah, largely as transactions move through the chain, it's yeah, it's anonymous in the sense they don't know who owns the wallet. You can track the transactions. Um, 
so something like chain 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 analysis.com websites like that really allow you to you know get a really good handle on how the um you know as the money goes from wallet to wallet um so as a hacker group you've got a few options the first option is um it's got different names but kind of tumbling or something um that's that's when you so there's online services usually on the dark web that let you put your bitcoins into their their tumbler and they take they take money from lots and lots of different people and essentially tumble it by sending out lots of other wallets. So money goes in and then money goes out, lots of different wallets. It's quite hard though when you've got $40 million worth of Bitcoin. Like it's, it's quite obvious if $40 million and $1 go in and you know, $40 million and $1 go out, but, you know, you can, it's, it's quite hard to uh, spread out that much money. So that's, that's the one thing. So kind of tumbling into different wallets. The other option, as you can move on from there, is um, you have options like uh, so definitely muling, so getting um, your average people to open crypto exchange um, websites, which these days are quite well regulated. You know the whole know your customer thing; um, you, you have to submit proof of identity and, and all that. So that's quite difficult. But maybe account takeover, maybe coercion, maybe mules. There's options there. Um, other options are um, Bitcoin ATMs. So those are much less regulated, but slower, but definitely an option. Go to an ATM, uh, put in the wallet ID. Also harder to find, right? There aren't as many uh, Bitcoin yeah. ATMs. If you've, got, if you've got $40 million, that's going to be a slow burn to get all <laughs> that out. Yeah. Um, so it definitely is used, but it's also tricky. Like if you're a hacker in Russia, there's not that many. In, the, in London, there's quite a few ATMs, but I don't know, more, more CCTV, but harder, but maybe some mule options there. Another option is uh, online gambling websites and gaming websites. Often they take payments in, in cryptocurrencies. So you've got a gambling website, um, you know, play a few rounds and then cash out. It can kind of claim that, oh, this money is from, you know, I, I won a few rounds. Yeah. I think the, the biggest option, I mean, you definitely see a lot of criminal groups, and I know the North Koreans have done this with their pilfering of, of Bitcoin, is over-the-counter um, traders. And the North Koreans generally... You know, they'll go, go across to China because that's quite, you know, it's quite a lot of activity in China. It's, it's over the counter. It's a person you go into a shop um, and they're supposed to be regulated, but they generally aren't that regulated. Sure. And you can get cash for cash for your for your Bitcoins. But it is hard and law enforcement can track you and they, they do find you. And there's been cases, so speak about the, the international component. So um, in February this year of 2023, um, between oh, the UK over here and the FBI, they indicted a bunch of Russian hackers who were involved in various uh, ransomware attacks. They're probably not going to get extradited, but their names are known, their identities are out there, and they're a little bit stained. At least the underground, like the underground knows, hey, these guys are stained. The you know the feds are watching them. Maybe we don't do business with them anymore. Um, but it, it is, yeah, it, it is a bit difficult to get the money out. It's, it's really interesting because. I, I would say that is a more difficult environment to move the money and to get the money out than the actual yeah. fiat global financial system, right? Because yeah. with regular money, you can just go to a company formation agent, get a bunch of companies made, with, yeah. and then use that to build an account and yeah. and uh, build up credibility and just move all your money through those. So it's so it's interesting how uh, crypto, I think, I think the real value for a lot of these hackers and a lot of these um, ransomware mercenaries is that it's an easy way to get the payment. Yeah. Because I think before it was it was one of those things where if you ask for a cash payment, yeah, someone has to go do a pickup. The yeah. FBI might be there, be there, police might be there, private security might be there. You know, it's it's a lot harder to do that initial handoff. Yeah. But then once you get the money, making it legitimate is becoming the more difficult mm. aspect in in all senses, right? Mm, yeah, and, absolutely. And I think 
I think it's interesting because there are both commercial and political motivations behind this. Like you were talking about North Korea. North Korea is incredibly prevalent at ransomware attacks, right? I think um, I was reading they have over a billion dollars in stolen or allegedly obtained cryptocurrency as of April 2023. So that's just a couple months ago. And that's double what they had, they were believed to have had in 2021. And again, these are only estimates, right? This is this is only an initial guess at how much money they actually have yeah. and actually have stolen. And that's, I guess, the the root cause of that is them trying to get around sanctions and trying to get around these uh, these blockades from having them in part, take part in the global economy. Yeah, and but yeah, so so I just I want to go back to the the commercial side of things for a second, which is, um, how over over time there's there's a lot of attacks right on on these business on these banks on these businesses and these financial institutions how does having cybercrime and suffering cybercrime just damage your business over time how can you avoid that impact yeah so i think i think there's there's two elements there right like what 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 is the impact and what can you do about it um so the impact it can be you know there's a lot of options um one is a reputational damage so front page news your organization's been compromised your data has been leaked on the internet all your all your private records and you know your your customers may not want to do business with you anymore you may lose customers or not be able to get new customers might be uh, fines so depending on, on what region you're in um there the, there are fines for you know depending how you're compromised and if you had insurance and if you had orders done but there's generally fines if you if you haven't been you know, following best practices these days to be honest those fines aren't um they aren't that great to hurt big organizations. Unfortunately, they, they tend to hurt SMEs more than big big organizations. It's almost cost of doing business. You know, it's an assumed risk that if we get compromised, we've got a bit of budget to be able to 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 pay those fines. Um, it could be um, if it's if you, if you go down the, the the ransomware route, it's yes, it's financial. So it might be okay. We've all our machines are locked, and we have to pay forty million, like all well, the uh, Royal Mail. What, I think the ransom started at like ninety million or something, went down to forty million in the end. But yeah, th- those are stupid numbers. Um, it's, sorry, that's just amazing that you can negotiate your ransom. Oh, it's so it's so it's so interesting. So um, it's, it's a whole other talk we could do. But th- there are businesses that negotiate with the the, the hacker ransomware dudes on your behalf. So like um, what's it called CoWave, I think CoWave.com. You can go to them and say, hey. I've, you know, ransomware's taken place. I've been hacked. Can you go and chat to the the hackers for me and negotiate a better price? Like it's an entire field. It's it's super super interesting. Um, and yeah, they they will listen. Like you can negotiate back and forth, and like maybe have a payment plan or something. Um, but yeah, they a lot of them are, are bizarrely quite professional. And it seems if you treat them professionally, they respond professionally. Like going, hey, uh, thank you, you know, thank you for your business and your product. We negotiate a better price because of X Y Z and down payment now and and whatnot. So it's super, super bizarre. I think bizarre and interesting. But yeah, you have companies that will broker those broker those types of things. But I think the 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 biggest thing that could hurt an organization. So one, you get you get so ransomware, you get popped, um, you pay it, they release your data anyway, and then you get fined because of that, and reputation damage because you're on the front page of the news, both for having paid it and for the ransom group releasing your data anyway. Because the threat is like you you pay them, there's no guarantee they're not going to release your data anyway. Like you might pay them half and they come back for more and you can't afford it. So, so they release it. So that's almost the, the end of business, worst case scenario. But that's also a reputational damage to the hacker group, right? It's, if, as you're saying, yeah, they, yeah. they want to be seen as proper commercial professional entities. Yeah. Then then breaking that trust is, is going to have people to say to you, 
oh, I'm not going to pay you. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah. which is what they want, right? Essentially, they want they want that money. So I just, I just want to wrap up with by going back essentially to to the start of this conversation, right? Where we were talking about the legwork involved in a lot of hacking work, and that hackers are also lazy, essentially, mm. uh, not lazy, uh, follow the path of least resistance. Yeah. And how, how bearing that in mind, what do you think about the threat? of generative ai and how do you think ai can play into this entire field in the future across across the entire spectrum mm. because ai is is the watchword at the moment so yeah absolutely is right it's, it's interesting for two reasons for me one is we're getting quite excited about um i guess what we're calling it kind of generative generative ai llm models ai has been around for a long time in our business processes so at the most what appears to be basic level targeted advertising um, there's really complex machine learning algorithms that, that do that kind of thing. So it's been here for a while. Yeah, this new strain is quite exciting and might change things up. To be honest, I think it's business as usual for the foreseeable, at least short term, where it might start to play uh, play a role. You know, from from the hacker side, yeah, you know, it's definitely possible to you know go and have a chat with ChatGPT or Bard or someone and get them to give you and trick them into giving you instructions on how to you know, launch a malware, um, a ransomware campaign or how to use hacker tools. I think most of the information is available via Google anyway, but it might help you. Like, you know, you can you can get it to help you build some new ransomware or, or, or something like that. So there's definitely some some avenues there. On the defender side, I think, yeah, there will be definitely opportunities, probably definitely on the financial side, right? Like monitoring accounts for unusual activity and you know, getting the machines to, to help with that. They already do to a large degree. You know, it's... A simple example, if you know, a transaction comes up, you bought shoes in Brazil, but you're in London, you bought a coffee in London this morning, that, that gets flagged, you phone the bank and, and, and let it go through. But I think there'll be more advanced models that really help um, help that angle and possibly also you know, t- take the load off um, help desks and, and, and things like that, which I think for the hackers will be a really exciting new game. Like, can you hack, can you hack the support bot um, and convince the bot that you are the person who made the transaction and things like that? I think my viewpoint is it's largely business as usual for at least the short term. Okay. Well, that, that makes sense, right? I think everyone who, like I've played with Bard and ChatGPT like everyone else, I was sure some of the stuff is very impressive. On the other hand, I don't trust any of it. When I see it, when, I, when it tells me something, I was like, okay, great. Now I need to go check all this yeah. information. Do you do the work? And, and do the work myself. But thank you so much for joining me today, Glenn. I, I really appreciate it. Illuminating. Where can people find you and talk to you if they if they want to get in touch? Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me on Twitter. That's Glenn with two N's, ZW, Glenn ZW. Um, as you mentioned, I've got a, a, a um, fishing simulation and training product called Capenta. That's capenta.io. Um, find me on LinkedIn. My consulting uh, website is marvo.com. But I'll say find, find me on Twitter or LinkedIn and drop me a line. I'd be happy to have a chat. Brilliant. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTalks. I'm Damna Sigadu, and I've been joined by Glenn Wilkinson. Make sure to subscribe to the show. It's available wherever you choose to get your podcasts. And you can always find us at www.finergo.com.